You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman blew up their first car, they launched a television series that gained, well, mythic status. Mythbusters, which just concluded a 16-year run with millions of fans, began as a trial program starring two special effects experts. It grew into an enormously popular show on the Discovery Channel and became a rare thing on television, a forum for critical thinking and scientific reasoning. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology and devote one episode a month to critical thinking skeptic check. In this show, we break from the usual format to present an interview with Adam Savage, the former co-host and executive producer of the television series, Mythbusters. He shares his favorite moments from the show, why he considers the process of making it to have been one of scientific reasoning, and yet won't call himself a skeptic. And he reveals the actual identity of the island where he and Jamie Heineman taped Duct Tape Island, and they did a lot of taping on that Duct Tape Island. It's a special feature interview on Skeptic Check. We're myth-busting with Adam Savage. Frankly, there's really nothing more interesting than questioning nuggets of popular wisdom. You know, can you really keep a bird from flying by putting salt on its tail? Well, if that's poultry, then I guess that would be a chicken nugget. Chicken nuggets. I, You know, but questioning these things is not really the same as going out and trying to find out the truth about some bit of wisdom that, you know, everybody seems to know, but that no one has bothered to actually try in the lab. But Mythbusters, they did that. They went into the lab. They tried to get real data. They weren't about to take anyone's word for anything. Well, now that the show has ended after 16 years on the Discovery Channel, the former executive producer and the co-host of the program, Adam Savage, sat with us to reflect back on the show, how it got started, and why they ever decided to put a rocket on a car in the first place. Adam, first, a bit of congratulation on a 16-year run of Mythbusters. Uh, How do you feel about no longer filming the program? I have gone through every stage of mourning the loss of something so important to me. Um, I've made Mythbusters longer than I've had any other career in my life. And I went through every stage of dealing with it, anger, acceptance, denial, bargaining, the whole, all the the Kubler-Ross stages of dealing with death. And it's been destabilizing. You know, I, we, we made this show, most television shows operate on a seasonal basis. So they'll film for eight months and then everyone gets a few months off. Mythbusters, we sent in a demo reel in the summer of 2002 
And the camera crews showed up three weeks later to film the pilots of Mythbusters. And we didn't ever stop filming until last November. Now, Mythbusters was shot largely in the Bay Area here in San Francisco. I'm in your home. Well, I don't know if this is your home. This looks like your studio here. This is my shop. This is my cave. It's my sanctum. Uh, I live about two blocks away from here. Okay, well, I, you know, the audience obviously can't see this, but, you know, hanging over here is the, the head of a Tyrannosaurus, or at least something that's made to look like the head of a exactly. Tyrannosaurus. There's a, a lot of stormtroopers' headgear here from uh, Star Wars. I'm a bit of a helmet junkie. So, yeah, of yeah. Wookiees. Uh, is there any stuff from Mythbusters in here as well? Oh, tons of stuff, actually. Um, one of my favorite pieces is hanging over here, the paper crossbow I made out of newspaper and glue made from food. Uh, we wanted to find out if a lethal weapon could be made out of uh, something as simple as a newspaper, and I proved that that was completely plausible. Okay. When you and Jamie Heineman began Mythbusters, you both came from a background of special effects. So my question is, when you had the idea for this show, was it to create entertainment, or was it some sort of educational project? I mean, what, what were you thinking? Uh, the show was not actually our idea. The show was uh, conceived by an Australian production company called Beyond Productions, based out of Sydney. They came to us in the spring of 2002 and asked for a demo reel, and we sort of grew into what everyone ended up knowing as Mythbusters. But to what extent was your facility at building all this special effect kind of stuff part of the package there? I mean, did they come to you because of that or because of your acting ability? Um, No, actually, you're exactly right. They came to us first. They asked for a demo reel because they needed somebody with a shop. When they were making a pilot for this show, they didn't have the money to build somebody's entire shop. And the, the genius of the producer who called us was... I think that special effects guys will have the right amount of rounded experience to build many different kinds of experiments. So we were originally hired because of our building skills, and it just so happened that we were uniquely suited for this job. Both of us have a scientific bent. Both of us are deeply committed to rigorous methodologies and getting past our own and each other's bias. That all came about because of Mythbusters. We wouldn't have told you that we identified ourselves as even amateur scientists at the beginning of the show, but I definitely feel like Mythbusters has turned me into a scientist in my head. Now, you knew Heinemann before this happened, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, because you have rather distinct personalities in the show. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of deadpan and droll, and uh, you're his foil very often. He, he, he loves to see you get into trouble. Yes. That but, is the subject of the show. Yeah, and again, it was an amazing bit of confluence of luck that it turned out that we were two people who didn't care that the camera was on us. We were interested in what was in front of us, not in how we were perceived by the camera. And so those journeys that we filmed were honest journeys. And... In addition, it turned out that we had accidentally a funny man, straight man team. Let's talk about some of the content of Mythbusters. You didn't go for testing things like, you know, can you stand an egg on its end kind of stuff. On the Equinox, that yeah. one? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, the swirls and bathtubs going uh, in different directions. I, I that is actually the swirls and bathtubs. I've always wanted to test that. Yeah. The only reason we didn't test it on Mythbusters is because it's very, very difficult to test properly. If you want to see the effect of the spinning of the earth on which way the water spins as it goes down a drain, 
you have to realize, as we did when we did the research, that when you pour water into a large, like, multi-gallon vessel, it takes on the order of days for all of the movement you imparted to the molecules. It takes days for there to be only Brownian motion in that water. For, for the water to settle down. Exactly. Yeah, well, and the Coriolis force is very weak anyhow. Oh, any, it's incredibly weak. And then you've got to figure out a way to pull the drain plug without imparting any bias to the Coriolis force that you're going to witness. And then you have to travel to Australia or South America to witness this below the Well, that the might equator. be worth it right there. At least you get an interesting trip. I <laughs> totally agree. But uh, because we were filming 42 weeks a year, long bits of travel like that were often prohibitively expensive, both in terms of time and money. Well, that's that's something you didn't test. Let's, right, let's right, talk right. about something you did okay. test. Uh, in particular, uh, some of these things, uh, they even struck me as dangerous tests, uh, things involving sharks. You, you yeah. seem to be big on sharks. And of course, audiences kind of like sharks. I think they like anything with big teeth. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what sort of myths involving sharks came under your scrutiny? Um, gosh, we did every one we could possibly think of. Uh, I think in 2005 was when Discovery asked Jamie and I to be the official hosts of Shark Week. And we tested everything from can sharks really smell a drop of blood in an area the size of a swimming pool to are they attracted to your urine or your vomit? Let's see. Will punching a shark make it go away? If a shark has you in his teeth and he's thrashing you back and forth, could you even find his eyes to gouge them out, which is one suggestion? Um, How how'd you test that? We built an 18-foot-long animatronic hydraulic powered shark and we got in its mouth we built a harness that held us in its mouth but we made it able to thrash us around (laughs) with the vigor of a real shark and then we had an off button on it that was built into its eyes so as we were being thrashed about if we could find that off button and get our thumb on it we could (laughs) stop that shark from thrashing my goodness. Okay. And, and by the way, what was the result? The result was that we were able to do that, but it was more difficult than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be fairly easy. So how did you decide which myths to test? I mean, did you and Jamie just come up with these at the producers? What, what was the deal? It was a combined effort. There's always a list being compiled of good stories, of good ideas. Um, a news story would come across the wire saying, European researchers have found that men get dumber when women are nearby. And we thought, that sounds like something we should totally test. And then we would talk out how to test it. We would discuss as a production team what we should do in order to build a methodology for testing it. Now, sometimes that would be fairly straightforward. We'd say, okay, so we need to get a bunch of men and a bunch of women and put them in a specific circumstance under which we can test this. But then sometimes as we were discussing this, we'd realize this isn't really interesting enough for television. What we've got here is four tests. They're all exactly the same. They're valid, but it's not, it's not a great TV story. So then we might peel it like an onion and find a good story inside there. Or we might try and come up with a good finish. Uh, often as a producer, I think of stories as like a comedian thinks of a joke. And a comedian knows the punchline at the beginning. That's the first thing they know. What's the punchline? The trick is to keep the punchline from the audience as long as it was reasonably possible to get the maximum affect out of that punchline. And we did the same thing on Mythbusters. I often knew what the last sequence would look like first. This is definitely one where we're going to end trying to drive a truck with square wheels up a hill. The question is, what are the tests before that? Because within the structure of Mythbusters, most of the actual science science of the show happens at about the 60% mark in an edit. 
That's where we're doing the bench tests in the shop and we're gathering data and we're really examining things and comparing them against their controls. The last experiment that we would do on a show, the big full-size one with explosions, that was usually icing on the cake. Okay, so you're testing suggestions that may sound plausible. I, I wouldn't say they were old wives' tales, but things like, you know, punch a shark in the face or in the nose and, and you'll get away. You know, that's kind of, if you will, popular wisdom. Mm -hmm. So you're going after that. I mean, obviously, this is not scientific research. You're not trying to look for the Higgs boson or anything like that. But it's not necessarily science, or, or do you think it is science? I mean, what are you guys doing? At the very beginning of Mythbusters, I would have said, absolutely not, this isn't science. Now I would set my flag down and say that it is with a couple of caveats. We are constrained by time and money and the necessary concision of telling a story on television um, to have painfully few iterations of our experiments one or three or five. In some cases, we've managed to gather hundreds of pieces of data, and those were really fun stories. But for the most part, in the actual testing phase, we're doing very few. And so I often say, we don't stand by our results on Mythbusters. I'm not going to tell you that I stand 100% behind our results, but I will tell you that I stand behind our methodologies that the goal on the show was always to build a genuinely rigorous methodology that if we had the time, we could run this methodology as long as it was needed in order to gather a result we would stand behind. And it was also part of the narrative process that we weren't going to come to any conclusions that weren't based on what we had learned within that show, that the show is self-contained. We are basing everything on empirically gathered knowledge, and that's science. And we are also showing all of the wrong turns, all of the screw-ups. In addition, we're also showing the creativity. And to me, this is something that I learned that I didn't know when we started making Mythbusters, is that science is a deeply creative endeavor, full of wrong turns and mess-ups. It is not somebody in a white coat saying, my experiment was a success, it went exactly as I thought. Yeah. There's no such, I, we make a joke on the show that failure is always an option, but what that really means to me is, there's no such thing as a failed experiment if you gather data. And that data might only be, this is not the right way to conduct this experiment, but that's still information. And that's science. That's how we have built everything we have around us. Yeah, I think Isaac Asimov said about science, it is, it's science not when you say eureka at the end of an experiment, but when you say, that's funny. <laughs> that is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite quotes about science. I totally agree. One of the things that I, I must say was very appealing to me, I mean, there are a lot of sort of leitmotifs in Mythbusters, one of them being, of course, explosions, but another one being high-speed things that can do a lot of damage, such as the rocket car. Could you put rocket engines on the back of a car, uh, you know, like a jet-assisted takeoff yes. devices on the on aircraft? Tell, tell me about that. Okay, so this was the very first episode of Mythbusters was the Jado rocket car, and it is perhaps one of the most famous of all urban legends couched under the, the rubric of Darwin Awards. Um, <laughs> and the story is, is that a guy found a jet-assisted takeoff rocket. These are rockets put on the side of heavy cargo planes in the military to help them get off of a short runway. And he found one and bolted it to the top of his Chevy Impala. I think it was a 68. And supposedly, according to the myth, accelerated to 350 miles an hour and embedded his car into the side of a cliff, turning it into a tiny hunk of metal. So the very early pilots... Was of, he in it at that point? Yes. 
within the story, yes. Uh, so in the very first uh, pilots of Mythbusters, we bought a Chevy Impala. We could not get a Genesis to take off rocket. In fact, when we called the military, true to the military's form, they called us to tell us no. And then a week later, they called us back to tell us no again. They told us no in duplicate. Oh, yeah. (laughs) At least it wasn't triplicate. Well, so we found some rocketeers, amateur rocketeers, who were able to put together for us a basically prosumer level rocket that matched the profile in terms of output and uh, energy of a jet assisted takeoff rocket. And we bolted that to the top of an Impala. And it made the Impala accelerate to about 150 miles an hour, but not 350 miles an hour. We revisited this story twice within the time we did Mythbusters. And again, we found that there's no such thing as a stable flight from a rocket, even powerful enough to make the Chevy go 350 miles an hour under any circumstances. And look, there were a lot of people that said, why didn't you take the engine of the car out and put tail fins on? And my argument is that's not the myth. I know that I can turn a car into a car-shaped rocket. The question is, can I turn an unmodified car into a viable rocket? And the answer to that is no. Well, that's obviously something that people can't, you know, try on their own. But some of the things you do, they might be able to do at home. Do you worry about that? Do your lawyers worry about that? that somebody will hurt themselves and they'll blame the show or something? Yeah, absolutely. That was a fear throughout the entire run of episodes. And we took that really seriously. We did a couple of things to circumvent that. One, we said at the top and bottom of every single episode, please don't try this at home. Um, we also made safety one of the characters in our show. I think from a superficial viewing, people could think, oh, Mythbusters, those guys are crazy. They do really dangerous things. But people who watch the show and really understand us have seen that we are deeply devoted to doing things in the safest way possible. And in fact, we showed very elaborate safety procedures in order to run people off at the pass. Like the lowest threshold for conducting this experiment is... Uh, distance and several hundred pounds of blast panels and hearing protection and eye protection and a bomb suit or bulletproof vest. Um, All of the rigmarole of safety we put in the show was all geared towards making people think that looks like more trouble than it's worth. That was our goal. (laughs) Well, when you blew up that uh, cement truck, I think you were about a mile away from it or something. We were a mile away. And that was that was an amazing demonstration of something that we never showed on Mythbusters, which is the difference between what you see and what you hear. When that cement truck blew up, we didn't hear it, not for about eight seconds when the blast wave hit us. So there is this point at which we were like, are we actually going to hear anything? And then the blast wave hit us like a truck. Well, it was amazing. You can't, you, unfortunately, you can't put that on television. It's too weird for someone to watch an explosion and then hear it. But that was the way we always witnessed explosions, a silent and then this huge, like getting hit by a two-by-four a few seconds later. That's interesting. <laughs> Were there a lot of injuries on the set? I mean, you see, you know, mishaps and so forth in the finished product. But, I mean, it, you know, you're, you're in a dangerous line of work, it looks like to me. Uh, we were, and I'm proud to say we had very few injuries. We had a couple of pulled hamstrings from working on irregular surfaces. We had six broken fingers. That was the most common injury on Mythbusters, and it was always from the same cause, moving safety equipment. We have these bulletproof blast shields that weigh about 150 pounds, and they they broke six fingers, the last one being one of mine. Has this interfered with your violin playing career? Not at all. (laughs) 
Coming up, Adam Savage gives us a behind-the-scenes peek at the popular Mythbusters episode, Duct Tape Island, and he shares the story of the most frightening experiment that he did for the show. We're busting myths with Adam Savage on our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science Skeptic Check. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You know, I think my favorite episode of Mythbusters was blowing up that cement truck. <laughs> you know, when you think of things that are indestructible, that you can't make disappear in a fraction of a second, who could think of anything more likely than a cement truck? And they did it. <laughs> well, for every hour or so that we saw of Mythbusters and television, many hours went into planning the episode. And now that the Discovery series has ended its 16-year run... The executive producer and co-host Adam Savage reveals some of the secrets of Mythbusters, what you didn't see on television. Adam, let's take a look behind the scenes of Mythbusters a bit. Uh, your background is industrial design, special effects, right? Yeah, okay. among other things. So, yes. uh, you know, tell me a typical application of those skills to producing the program. Um there is a great quote from Steve Martin's autobiography uh, in which someone says to him at the beginning of his career, you will find eventually that you'll use everything you ever learned. And that totally happened on Mythbusters. So I have a background in graphic design. I have a background in filmmaking. I have some background in acting, in writing, in storytelling. And all of that came in and came to bear in telling the stories we told on Mythbusters. My background in graphic design gave me a keen eye for being able to look at a frame of the show and make sure we were telling as much of the story as possible in every frame. Over the course of Mythbusters, you'll see I added more colored tape and more labels to things on set, on site, in the experiments. And the reason was I wanted the audience, when they're looking at the TV, even if they just turn it on for a second to go, oh, I see, that's a thing, and it's going to fire a cooked shrimp through that fireball into that. It's all going to be clear from that shot. And my camera crew, we'd work really hard so that each shot from every angle would tell a clear story, not just here's a thing hitting a target and bouncing back again. My background in acting gave me a real leg up in being able to communicate and to figure out how I communicate the stuff that we're doing. It is true. Everything I ever learned came to bear in, in making the show. And I assume that includes special effects because there were certainly a lot of props that... Uh, Absolutely, know. yeah. And special effects specifically from the standpoint of making commercials rather than films. I worked for many years in film special effects. It was, I will say, kind of funny to work on a show where our career previously in special effects was always to fake things and make them look real. The goal on Mythbusters was the opposite, to make it all happen for real. We never fudged a result on Mythbusters. We always folded in the, the actual whatever happened into the show. When the rocket car blew up on the stand, that was by one metric a disaster. We built a whole episode based on what was going to happen here. But we cut it as it happened. That's the result. And that is sometimes the thing that happens. That's science. 
Was there a lot of pre-testing of uh, what you were going to do? I, I suppose not, because it, it looks like many of these things were sort of one-take uh, events. I mean, you're not going to run that rocket sled 20 times. No. So it's it's a lot of preparation, uh, maybe a short amount of time of execution, and then, you know, you put it together. We would do as little pre-testing as we could possibly get away with in order to make sure we knew roughly how the day's shoot would go. So... If it was a mission-critical experiment in which we weren't sure if the result would be spectacular or really awful or boring or not televisual, we might test it in secret behind the shop the day before. But we prized the genuine reaction to the thing happening on site. And wherever we could, 95% of the time, we were conducting the experiment that you saw on television for the very first time for ourselves as well. Did uh, they ever miss the shot? I mean, you have a lot of cameras, I think. It's not just a single camera shoot on these things. No, and our crew was amazing. Uh, our camera crew functioned as almost a farm team. All three of our cameramen for the last few years of Mythbusters started out as interns on our crew and slowly matriculated up and built their skill base until they're really, I think, the best camera crew on television. I, I want to ask you a few questions about a particularly entertaining episode, Duct Tape Island. You seem okay. to have a thing for duct tape. Yes. Uh, the, the premise is that you and Jamie are stuck on a desert island with nothing but your clothes. You don't have any shoes. and But you do have many rolls of duct tape yes. that somehow mysteriously appeared on this island. Uh, what was the myth being tested here? Well, so this is, again, our search for interesting material. And the myth is that duct tape can do anything. We, I think we ended up doing five separate hours of television devoted to how versatile duct tape is as a material. And frankly, I'm here to admit, I don't love duct tape. Uh, it is not my go-to problem-solving material. However, it is a wonderful rubric for ingenuity. It is a wonderful crowbar with which to show people how much exists in something that is a seemingly humble material. And so in Duct Tape Island, we had done two duct tape specials before. We'd made a boat out of duct tape and we'd made a hundred foot long rope bridge out of duct tape. And Discovery asked us to do another. So we sat down as a production team and thought, okay, what else could we do with duct tape? We're, we're not really thinking of it. So as word association, I was standing at the whiteboard and I started just writing down words. What does duct tape do? It fixes, it repairs. And then I wrote down the word rescue. And I don't quite remember what happened after that because we all started talking really fast, but I do know that the plot of Duct Tape Island showed up on the board about five minutes later. <laughs> the moment rescue entered the room, our whole team sort of got this light bulb moment and was like, right, we should be stranded somewhere where duct tape is our only way out. Let's make a new kind of boat. Let's make shoes. Let's catch chickens. Let's gather water. Let's make a still. And, and did you do all that stuff yourself, including, you know, the, the, the trap for the birds? And we did. All we did. If you saw us build it on Mythbusters, we built it. There was not a huge team of people making stuff behind the scenes. I was given this question to ask you by a 13-year-old fan. She's seen every Mythbusters episode, and that's in regard to Duct Tape <laughs> Island, I guess. Her question, where did the cameraman sleep on the island? <laughs> <laughs> so this is one in which we debated a lot as a production team how much to make fun of the idea that we were stranded. And 
we prided breaking the fourth wall on Mythbusters. And that was one was a way to, to keep the show interesting so that we're not always just pretending that it's this blank white space in which we're curious about something. But also because I think our fidelity to the audience was to reveal the process, the process of everything. Uh, and so we did make fun of the fact that we weren't really stranded on an island. We were on the north shore of Oahu uh, at a place called the Turtle Island Resort. Uh, and we were filming in many of the locations that the television program Lost was filmed. And I will tell you that on most of the shots in the episode Duct Taped Island, if you pan the camera 10 degrees one way or the other, you'll see a hotel. We were smack in the middle of civilization for most of that shoot. And again, we made fun of that on the actual episode. And that was part and parcel of bringing the audience into the process uh, of, of how we were actually doing this. You know, not all of the uh, myths were so lighthearted. There's the myth that if you drive your car into a lake, not to be recommended, but if you do that, you know, wait till the car fills with water before you try and open the door. Yes. You actually tested that. We did. We did and found that, in fact, yes, the differential of pressure between outside and inside as a car is sinking and while it is filling up with water, make it nearly impossible to open the door from the inside. And this is, uh, we did two episodes on this, Underwater Car. Uh, and I discovered a couple things. One is that being in a car filling with water is many people's worst phobia. My mother is still not allowed to watch this episode. She finds it way too stressful. But the second is, I think at this point, about 15 people credit their lives being saved to what we showed on the episode. That they use the techniques that we demonstrated to patiently wait until the car filled with water or to break the window before they had to wait for the car to sink to the bottom of a lake. But we've gotten many emails over the years from people saying thank you. Yeah. Were you were you scared? Because I, I could see there was a guy sitting next to you or in the back seat with a, an air hose in case you got in trouble. Yes. So again, we did this episode twice. The first time we did it with a car sinking upright. And that episode was fine. I'm very confident in the water. I can hold my breath for over two minutes. I didn't have much of a problem with that one. But we got word that most cars, when they hit the water, don't sink upright. They do what's called turn turtle they hit on the front and then they flip upside down Ooh. and that it's much more disorienting to be in a car upside down so we wanted to test this and i sat in civilian clothes on a car that we dragged off a barge pulled upside down and yes i had my safety diver don best sitting in the back seat he had everything he needed we had several extra sources of air in the car and as the final bit of safety i had uh, about 30 seconds of breathable air strapped to my shoulder in a little pony bottle so as the car is sinking, and it takes about a minute for a car to fill up with enough water to sink, I'm narrating what's happening to the camera, and the crew is right outside the car sitting on a barge. We can all see each other, and the car is slowly filling with water. And when the car fills with water, it is an exponential filling. It's not a linear filling. So it goes slow at first, and then fast, fast, and then almost immediately it's just completely full of water. And as it was doing that, I hyperventilated on purpose, did the... <laughs> And took a deep breath and opened my eyes. Now, here's the thing that we didn't anticipate. When we got this car, we cleaned it out of all its fluids, so we weren't going to contaminate the water we were testing in. We also vacuumed it out. And the owner of the car that we had purchased at a junkyard was a committed smoker. We cleaned hundreds of cigarette butts out of the car before commencing the experiment. What we didn't realize is that we hadn't cleaned any of the tar and nicotine out of the upholstery. 
So when the car filled up with water and I took that deep hyperventilated, hyperoxygenated breath and I opened my eyes, my eyes burned like I'd poured salsa into them because of the nicotine in the water, which was brown and milky. So I could not open my eyes. I could not see. I had to close my eyes and wait for the pain to subside. And then I realized that I didn't know where I was in the car. I realized I wasn't sure if I was in the back seat or the front seat. And moreover, I wasn't even sure if the car was upright or not. And I felt around for a door handle. I found one, but for some reason, I still couldn't figure out in my head. I couldn't map my location. And I I pulled the handle and the door wouldn't open. And I think at this point, about 90 to 100 seconds had passed. And I thought, all right, it's time. I'm going to call this. I'm going to take a breath from the pony bottle. So I took a breath from the pony bottle. I still can't open my eyes. And then I realized I needed a real octopus. So I reached out. An octopus is the extra uh, respirator that my safety diver had attached to his vest. So I reached out my hand and sort of waved it in a direction I thought my safety diver might be in. And I was lucky that he was there. And he put a regulator in my hand and I put it in my mouth. The problem was Don was upside down and I was not. And so I put the regulator in my mouth upside down. So when I took a big, fat, deep breath of what I thought was air, I got a ton of water in there too. I inhaled a couple of teaspoons of water. And there is very few things more upsetting to a human than inhaling water. And my whole body tensed. And I had this thought underwater with my eyes closed. Tense people die, calm people live. And I forced myself one by one to relax my muscle groups. And I thought, what do you need to do? Go to your training. Right. You need to pull the respirator out, turn it 180 degrees, put it back in, push the purge button, take a breath on faith. And Truly, when you are under distress under the water, the last thing you want to do is pull the regulator out of your mouth. But I did turn it upside down and it was fine. But this was the most frightened or the most tense I have ever been on a set. I can't say that I felt fear at that moment because it was just all pure adrenaline. But I learned that I am able to not panic under pressure. I don't desire to learn that lesson again. I am not an adrenaline junkie. I'm glad I went through that experience. I would not do it again. That's Adam Savage, the former co-host of Mythbusters. I have to say, listening to that story of the submerged car gives me terrible claustrophobia. That actually made me quite panicked to hear that. Really? Well, apparently he even was a bit panicked. But, you know, depending on how deep you go, that that is really valuable advice. When he said that this episode of Mythbusters had actually saved lives, he'd gotten letters. I could believe that because your natural inclination is you're down there in the bottom of a lake and you just want to get out. And he's telling you, no, wait until the car fills with water. It's also an indication of how far he and Jamie would go to test a concept. Yeah, and indeed, they pointed out that they never fudged a result. I mean, this was all honest. This was this was not make-believe. You go to the movies and you see it, and it might be scary, but it's all make-believe, but not here. Well, I love the no. fact that they didn't fudge anything on Duct Tape Island, because as you know, they did some amazing things on that episode. They caught that chicken, they made <laughs> shoes, a chess set, an entire boat, and as Adam said, they actually did all that. Are, are you going to fill the trunk of your car with duct tape now, just in case? I mean, no, know. I think that looks too suspicious. <laughs> well, coming up, the show is myth-busting, but is making boats out of duct tape or even learning how to escape from a submerged car really science? 
Well, Adam Savage takes that on, and he also explains why he doesn't consider himself a skeptic. And yet he's on our Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. What's he doing there? Well, it's because we're busting myths with Adam Savage. everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. We're talking with Adam Savage in this special episode of Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science. Why? Well, because his show, Mythbusters, spent 16 years testing urban legends, popular notions, and answering questions such as, can you make a lead balloon fly? And that show, it's now in retirement. Adam Savage is the former executive producer and co-host of the program, and he talks now about the show's relationship to science literacy, to testing pseudoscience and why he personally recoils from being called a skeptic. Adam, if one of your goals was strengthening science literacy, what do you think was the cumulative effect for a viewer uh, after they'd watched, you know, a couple of years of Mythbusters? I mean, what does the audience come to understand about science or for that matter, even their own, you know, beliefs? That is a great question. Um, I will start by telling you that we didn't set out to make an educational show and we didn't set out to make a science show. Uh, that was not part of our original mandate. The pitch for Mythbusters was urban legends are tested empirically by a couple of guys with better than average building skills. The fact that Mythbusters has inspired, really at this point, a generation of engineers and scientists, this is what's been happening over the past few months after the show has ended, is people are writing and saying, I'm a PhD chemist and I got into it in high school because of your show. Uh, I am at an engineering school because of your show. I'm raising my kids on your show and they're winning science fairs. We didn't set out to make a scientific show, but when we started to understand the power of the scientific method and how creative a process it really is, we became addicted to it. We became addicted to following our noses through an exploration to figure out where it would lead. And the wrong turns and the left turns within that explorative process were some of the most entertaining results we got on the show. I remember at one point, We were in South Africa filming with sharks and a storm kept us off the water for a couple of days and we needed to film something. So we thought, well, there's an elephant preserve just a couple of hours from here. Let's go find out if elephants are afraid of mice. We thought we were filming five minutes of filler. So we got several mice from a person who bred them for feeding to monkeys. 
and we took them to this elephant preserve. We took a piece of elephant dung, which seemed to us very convenient because they're all over the place. And we hollowed one out and put a mouse underneath it. And as an elephant was walking down the path, we pulled a piece of monofilament, revealed the mouse and watched as the elephant stopped. And then the best way to describe it is tiptoed around the mouse. Well, then we realized we actually got a result. We thought the biggest problem was going to be what happens when the elephant steps on the mouse, but we got a genuine result. Okay, so now the question is, how viable is that result? Maybe elephants are afraid of watching their poo animate as they're walking down a path. So we took the mouse out of the equation and we put the poop back and we moved it as the elephant walked. Elephant didn't even notice. It was really the mouse. It, well, so then we did it again with a different mouse and a different elephant and we got the same result. And we were there to say, we can't tell you what was going on in the elephant's heart of hearts, but by all appearances, the elephant noticed the mouse and didn't want to harm it. So I think it would be plausible to conclude maybe elephants are are afraid of mice. Rodent elephant repellent. I mean, that, that's that, that's really good knowledge to know if you're going to Africa, I suppose. It must be hard to sort of get the level right because you've undoubtedly gotten a lot of fan mail from people who just love the show. That's obvious. But did you also get letters from people who thought, well, you guys aren't serious-minded enough to tackle these concepts? Absolutely. We got tons of that kind of mail saying, these guys are idiots. They don't know what they're doing. In almost every case, from almost the very beginning, the people that would jump to our defense on those forums and on Twitter and other pieces of social media were the highest level working scientists at JPL and LANL and NASA and Oak Ridge Ballistics Labs. And what they would say is these guys might not be performing the most rigorous experiments, but their methodologies are sound and they are demonstrating empirically based knowledge. They're demonstrating the ability to base your understanding of something on something you've witnessed rather than something you've been told. They're demonstrating that science is creative. We were demonstrating that the ways in which your bias can get in your own way and how to get past it. Well, so. you were demonstrating, in a sense, the scientific method. I mean, say, here, here's a, 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 a hypothesis, mm -hmm. right? I mean, call it a myth, but it's an hypothesis. And you say, all right, is it true? Is it not true? We'll do an experiment. I mean, yes. you were doing that. And, and I believe you were actually quite proud when you took on the question of, did we really go to the moon? Mm -hmm. Because there's something like, I don't know, 15% of the populace yeah. believes that we didn't go to the moon. Yeah. Right. And you came out of that saying something about, well, maybe this will, you know, help science literacy. I, I don't think that's the way you phrased it, but there was something to that effect. And, and the moon landing episode, I remember Jamie in the beginning was like, why are we doing this? This is ludicrous. I don't want to give any breath to, to people that believe something so ludicrous. And to be clear, you know, one of the categories we never went into on Mythbusters was what we call, or what my friend James Randi would call, the woo-woo category. We never went looking for the chupacabra or the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. We never went looking for the cause of crop circles. We always wanted to find something in which we had a control we could compare our result against. And we were very clear. We're not in the business of proving negatives. We're in the business of actually being able to compare something against a control, witnessing what happens and coming to a conclusion. You know, your show is kind of based on skepticism, let's face it. I mean, mm -hmm. there are these myths, and the question is, you know, should I just accept them because, after all, they're, they're widespread, or do we just test them? This is a fundamental uh, premise of science. Mm -hmm. 
I believe you're actually involved in skeptics organizations. Uh, I have been, yes. James Randi, who founded the James Randi Educational Foundation and The Amazing Meeting, is a friend of mine. And absolutely, we've been interviewed in Skeptic Magazine by Michael Shermer and other giants in the skeptical community. Um, I have been disappointed in seeing the community of skeptics and atheists and other groups out there sort of devolve into factional infighting over the years. And I find the whole area to be so toxic. I no longer identify myself as a skeptic. I simply say I'm a critical thinker. Interestingly, I think of the idea of skepticism as almost overly negative. I'm not negative about things. I am just interested in what the truth of the thing is. And so critical thinking is a more generic term that I'm more comfortable with. Uh, and I think that, yes, we need to be a culture and a people that doesn't take everything on faith, that pays attention to what went before in order to inform ourselves about what might happen next. Was there ever a scientific idea that you really wanted to test, but for maybe practical reasons or because it wouldn't work on television, you didn't get a chance to do that? Um, there are a few, sure. Um, I, you know, I never got to explore the water hammer effect, which is one of the reasons your pipes go bang, bang, bang in New York in the wintertime as they turn on the, the steam heat. The water hammer effect can be incredibly devastating, and it, it involves running water through a pipe and then stopping it, and the amount of inertia inherent in moving water can make steel pipes explode. This is something I've always been fascinated by that for some reason we never found a story that worked. Was uh, this because you grew up in New York? It, it is partly because I grew up in New York. I never found a way to experimentally roll a car no matter how badly I wanted to be in a car as it was rolling. But they do roll cars in the movies. Well, they do roll cars in the but, movies but we couldn't find a myth against which to test a car rolling. Mm. Yeah, because they use a special apparatus to Absolutely. sort of kick the car over, right? Yeah, and they use roll cages in the cars. Again, we, we couldn't figure out a story in which rolling the car became important empirically to test. Just elaborating a bit on that idea of visual appeal being important, I think one of your all-time favorites is testing the idea that an opera singer could break a glass with their voice. Absolutely. Yeah, this had never been caught actually happening on videos, as far as I know. Absolutely, and this is another thing that we didn't realize when we started making this episode. We had heard that Ella Fitzgerald's voice had shattered a wine glass. We had heard that the great Caruso had shattered a wine glass with his voice. And our researchers went out to try and just purchase the rights to this footage. And it turned out that the footage didn't exist. Moreover, we found evidence that Caruso's widow said, yeah, he never broke a wine glass with his voice. It was all bull. We found that the Memorex commercial of the wine glass shattering was not for real. Then we found a heavy metal singer who had a wine glass shattering in his concerts. And he had figured out a way to put a piece of plywood with a hole in it in front of a speaker to focus the sound waves in order to shatter a certain kind of glass. So we bought that kind of glass, we bought that kind of speaker, and we were able very quickly with his tutelage and one of his students, Jamie Vandera, to shatter a wine glass using a speaker. And then we realized we've got to finish this episode doing it for real with just a human voice. And it was just a few blocks away from my shop here at the Castro Theater that we have high-speed footage of Jamie Vandera breaking a wine glass with his unassisted voice. And it is, I'm here to say, the first time anyone ever did it and the very first time it was ever caught on film. And this was astounding to me 
as a producer, as a storyteller, that we stumbled into something that everyone just believes that is possible. And we found, oh, no, it's not a fait accompli that it's possible. And yet we were able to do it. That, that was thrilling to me. That felt like we were contributing. That feels to me like we were genuinely contributing. Yeah, well, there was groundbreaking, I guess, glass-breaking yes. experimentation. But I, I assume that you have to hit more or less the right note. I mean, this depends on resonance. With the, You have it to hit the resonance frequency of that glass, right? You so need a glass with a very focused resonant frequency. So we're using leaded crystal wine glasses of a very specific type that Jamie Vendera's mentor had figured out were ideal for this. And then the, the tone that you sing at is the tone that the wine glass makes when you hit it with your finger or you rub the edge and you get that out of it that's the tone at which it will break what was amazing to me looking at the high speed shot from above is that the wine glass distorts let's if you picture the mouth of a wine glass right now it's about two and a half inches in diameter on the high speed camera we could see the mouth of the wine glass vibrating up to a quarter of an inch before the wine glass broke. It was an astounding amount of movement out of something we don't think of as flexible. Glass on the high-speed camera, incontrovertibly, they're seeing just how plastic and rubbery it can get. Well, finally, Adam, after 16 years of Mythbusters, are you looking for a new job? Have you got a new project that uh, you're keen to do? I have a lot of plates spinning in the air. Uh, I am working on a stage show for 2017 that I'm very excited about. Uh, my team and I have been pitching shows. I'm doing lots of work on Tested.com, and I'm spending a lot of time with my family, with my dogs, and a lot more time here in the shop, just kind of seeing what's going to interest me and take me to the next step. It's been a great unemployment so far. Adam Savage, thanks so very much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. This is great. Adam Savage is the former executive producer and co-host of the television show Mythbusters on the Discovery Channel. Rather an interesting premise where you bring in the special effects guys, not as special effects guys, but as the stars of the show. And who would have thought? I mean, you know, it's just going to be dramatic explosions and stuff like that, testing uh, urban myths and all that sort of stuff. And it turned out to be something that could actually demonstrate how science works. And Adam Savage said that they didn't know what they were being brought into when the show began, but it pulled on all their natural skills of building things. It turned out they were very comfortable, he and Jamie, in front of a camera. And over time, he felt like he became a scientist. You know, they said they don't stand by their results, but they do stand by their methodologies. And that shows that they were into real science. This is how you prove whether something is true or not. People can tell you all the time about how you can break a glass by, you know, singing at it. But nobody had ever tried it. Nobody had ever done it on taper film. That was really impressive. And you say on film, what Mythbusters did is it provided a forum for critical thinking and scientific experimentation on television. That is a rare place to experiment with scientific ideas. Another thing that impressed me was that they never went for woo-woo science, as Adam described it, you know. And you would think, oh, the first thing these guys are going to do is go looking for UFOs or Bigfoot or something like that. They didn't do any of that. They, they, they took stuff that a lot of people believe, right? You know, hit, the, hit that shark in the, in the eyes and, and it'll go away. Well, you know, they tried it. Things that people believe and that sound plausible. Yeah, well, that's why they believe them, I, I suppose. But I have to say there are plenty of people who believe stuff that isn't plausible, like we didn't go to the moon. They, they didn't want to do that at first. And uh, I guess Adam convinced Jamie that they ought to do it. Well, it sounds as though they had a great time, a fun run with Mythbusters, and that Adam Savage is going to be on to 
exciting projects in the future, so we'll have to keep our eyes peeled for him. He's going on the road, and that that's kind of interesting, too, because he's going from a TV show to a stage show, and of course, on a stage, you can't edit it. It's got to work. <laughs> I think that'll be interesting, too. And one final thing, you know, that story about the elephants and the mice, that, that was just, a, you know, something to keep them busy when the weather was bad. And they find out that, my gosh, elephants don't like mice. That was really turning lemons into lemonade, if you ask me. Especially if the elephants step on your lemons. Well, thanks to the people who never myth helping us produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking skeptic check. This episode, Busting Myths with Adam Savage. And if you like this and you would like to hear more Skeptic Check or other Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because someone embalmed your smartphone in duct tape, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. And if you listen to the show via iTunes, well, we invite you to leave a review of the show on our iTunes page. And to reach us directly with your comments, be sure to throw in some faint praise. Email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. All right, you guys are looking good. Sarah, he's going to hit that There goes the rockets. Wow. I have no idea what happened. All I see is smoke. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.